Does the podcast have a social media or is it just on? No, I don't have, I don't really have any accounts for the podcast. Just you. Just, just you. Yeah, just my account. And then um, it's just honestly, if I, I've thought about it, but I get, I'm, I would abandon the, I mean, I'm just not on it enough to keep up multiple accounts to be honest oh yeah dude it's it's hard it's hectic. It is, i've done it before yeah. and it is hard i do not prefer it yeah <laughs> i honestly next time i do it i'm gonna have two phones because it's just a little bit easier to try and keep track of everything and i don't like the fact that i'm a little ocd about notifications <laughs> in what way like i can't stand to have a bunch of them open at the same time like I either have to dismiss it or I have to put it in my to-do list or I have to answer or something like most of the time it just I don't know yeah my life hack for that is uh, I turned off all notifications really yeah so I was reading um, have you ever heard of the uh, school of greatness it's by Lewis Howes it's a podcast he does a YouTube series too he interviews a ton of people it's a really great uh, he's got a great interviewing style great content but he was interviewing one gentleman, and I can't remember who it was, but he was talking about mental hacks to take your brain off, especially when you start being in those operational leadership roles. He realized it was always coming home with him. It was on his brain 24-7. Yep, yep. And then he got into, you know, having stuff on your mobile device. Now you have a mobile office. You have a mobile company. You have everything. You can run an entire business off an mm-hmm. iPhone now. And so... From a performance standpoint, he never had like those breaking points where he could spend time away from the business, be refreshed, so into himself, his family, that kind of deal. So he had a bunch of little life hacks. One of them was he wrote, he would write on a on a post-it note or a couple post-it notes what he had to do the next morning, and he would put it under the keyboard of his computer at the end of the day. And he said he did that because he was a visual learner, and by having the note underneath the keyboard, mm-hmm. he couldn't see it in his mind's eye because the n- note was under something. Oh, interesting. And for whatever reason, that yeah. worked. That didn't really work for me. Um, but what did was just turning off all notifications. And he said, have designated pockets of time to where you're, you can actually be intentional with the things that you're doing on your mobile device. Mm-hmm. So if you're sitting it down to do emails, set a block of time in your calendar to do emails. Most people tend to try and do it all simultaneously. So I'm checking my emails, I'm responding to an email, then I'm responding to an Instagram post, then I'm doing this and then I'm having this phone call and then I have this appointment and so they like scatterbrain. Correct. Yeah. And so he said if if you can consolidate that to actually dedicated moments in your day, then you're more effective in those no, things. Think. So I don't I don't scroll through for like Rose House, I don't, I'm not staring at the Instagram all day. I spend a designated portion of time to do that so that I'm actually engaged, so that my responses are thoughtful, that my posts aren't nonsense, that the content that we put out and the things that we do with our follower base is intentional. And then two, then your brain's not always on it. That makes sense, yeah. Same with emails. If you're signing contracts and doing financial uh, dynamics, handling those via email, you don't want that to be just a fly-by-night random response that you like had five minutes to sit down in your desk and write a couple emails. So I designate pockets of time just to do emails. So then mm. when the emails come, they're actually yeah. thought out 
intentional. I'm not distracted by a million other things in a perfect world anyways. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, it's good to at least, you know, have, you know, at least give these things some thought, you know, because I mean, we're not all going to achieve perfect productivity, you know, but at least if you know the things that kind of work for you or the little tricks that, you know, might help to, uh, you know, fine tune the way that, you know, you're able to problem solve and, and approach, you know, I've, I've honestly gone through so many different styles of, you know, note keeping and to do kind of lists and apps and all sorts of random stuff. And, um, you know, I recently I've kind of gone back to pen and paper. Um, I have in my office, I have like a, it's like a, like just paper but it's like on a string and it's like rolled up so I can like pull it down and like write on it and then like keep writing and then just keep pulling down kind of thing yeah dude and I literally will think of something and just run into my office and just scribble it down on that thing and like it's sloppy it you know might not make sense to anybody else but it's kind of like my doesn't matter what it is that goes on here first kind of thing if I don't know if it's not going to a specific you know place that I'm working on and then there will be moments where I'm just like oh what should I do right now or you know like a moment of like you know should I just turn on a Netflix show or should I do something productive I can just look at that list and be like oh there's six things on here that I can start working on at any moment and like get something done that I might forget like if right now you're like all right do something I'm like oh, I don't have anything to do you know just because like for some reason those tasks just don't come to your head even though you have like a million things to do that's how my brain is is like the more things I have to do the harder it is sometimes to <laughs> to put them all in like progressive order and like figure out the best way to do it unless I see it written down and I'm like okay these things seem to go together I can do these at the same time I don't, I'm very visual even in a highly digital world you're dead on. I mean, I remember a mentor of mine years ago said, there's, there's something powerful, Aaron, about you writing something down in your own handwriting. Mm. There's something that happens in that moment. Sure, there's probably some nerdy neurological science and reasoning about kinesthetics and all that kind of stuff, but um, he said there's, there's something powerful. I agree. In that, in how productive you can be, how thoughtful you can be, how intentional you can be, um, introspective, reflecting, journaling, things like that are just something happens when you can quiet your mind enough to put the little computer box in your pocket <laughs> and For take, now. take the time to yeah. spell a word. Right? How often yeah. do we even like I was literally forget just how to thinking, spell a yeah, word? <laughs> that writing things down forces you to think at a little bit of a slower pace because you can't write as fast as you think. And so, you know, you start to come up with your sentence structure and you write down a word, but you know, by the time you get to, you know, halfway through writing it, you could have already changed how you wanted to say the last part of that sentence. And um, I was reading a study on how like speech, like just talking um, is also a very slow way of thinking in a way um, and so which is why to a degree sometimes just talking out loud to yourself or you know talking with friends obviously like can be so therapeutic because you're literally slowing your brain down for you to be able to express your thoughts through you know oral language you know and obviously I mean I'm gesticulating here and so there's obviously nonverbal communication going on but I mean even in a case where that wasn't happening if you were talking on the phone um, you know the fact that you have to put your thoughts into words uh, I think is a big part of the fact that um, you know it, it, it kind of 
I don't know, it's slowing that down sometimes when you're thinking in your own head, it's easy to get caught up in your thoughts and then you can get scrambled and anxiety and stress and all this comes inside your own head. And it's hard to express anxiety sometimes. You know what I mean? Like, what's, why are you feeling anxious or what's making you anxious? Why are you stressed? Oh, I don't, you know what I mean? Like the first response is, I don't know. Like, you know, it's just, I just feel this way. And it's hard to externalize sometimes, like using language, those feelings, um, because they're very like internal. And I, and I think that a way to sometimes fight through that is to try to externalize them. You know, and if you sit down and try to talk to somebody about your anxiety, even if it's just a friend, it doesn't have to be a therapist, you know what I mean? But just like verbalize like, hey, I'm anxious today and this is why I'm feeling anxious. Like it might sound like, oh, I already know this because I'm talking about myself. But hearing you say it out loud and putting words to the feelings, I think helps for you to kind of work through your own problem. I don't know. I, I'm a big believer in like self-therapy <laughs> to a degree or being self-aware, I guess. And, and I think that, you know, talking and stuff like that really helps with that sort of thing. 100%. There's a book out there called Motivational Interviewing. It's typically used by clinicians. <clears throat> um, it's taught, I think it was, dates back to the 80s. But the whole concept about how do you cause change behavior. And it's a fascinating book. It's definitely an academic read. It's not a, uh, for funsie, I'm looking to escape and have a little book to read. It's, it's an intentional personal development book. But one of the topics in there is, is about ambivalence. And ambivalence is defined as knowing both the reason why you should change and also the reason why you wouldn't or you wouldn't be willing to. And so when you sit down with someone and it's a habitual pattern, let's say medically or something like that, uh, you can see how the behavior is repeated over and over and over again. So then the clinician sits down and says, hey, you should probably stop drinking so much because you're killing your liver or whatever, whatever the case may be. <clears throat> well, the patient already knows that argument because they've run it in their brain a million times. And I think that that definitely transitions to day-to-day -day life in everything. We know the things that we probably should change or be prompted to change. It just comes down to whether or not the actions to change that behavior, if there's any amount of willingness in the spirit to do that, uh, which is a fascinating thing. And sometimes, like you said, you don't come to that realization until you actually hear yourself say it out loud because you've run it in your head but in your mind's ear, if you will, hearing yourself say those things over and over again is different than, again, same with the writing something out. There's power in, in speaking something into existence and you go, oh, that's how I'm really feeling. So this is a perfect example. Um, I have a little brother and he got in some just trouble at school and he goes to a Waldorf school, and so they're big on teaching emotions and how to deal with them, and it's, it's very, very cool uh, back in Detroit. And so he got in a little scuff with another kid, and he, he, he got suspended for the day. So I called him and had a little big brother, little brother moment, and I said, so what happened? He goes, well, I was just, I, I don't know. I just saw red, because right, red is the, is the color for anger. anger. And I said, oh, so this kid made you feel angry. He said, no, I wasn't angry. I just saw red. And I didn't think about the consequences of my decisions. Mind you, he's like nine, 10 years old speaking exactly like this. This is no exaggeration. He's a it's awesome. br brilliant kid. Yep. So then we started talking a little bit more. I said, well, I don't understand. So you, you weren't mad. He goes, no, I wasn't mad. 
I said, but you saw the color red. He goes, yeah, you know. I said, I don't know if I've ever seen a color red like that before that's prompted me to make a decision. Can you, can you teach me something about that? And he said, oh, well, you know, Aaron, sometimes you're so angry that you see the color red and you don't think about your actions. I said, right, I understand that, but you said that you weren't angry. He goes, no, I was mad. And then you could kind of hear the pause on the phone. He goes, oh, <laughs> I was mad. Right, so there was a part of it that was a little disassociated because he knew what red meant. Yeah. But if you get disassociated, yeah. then he said it verbally and explained it to me. And then he goes, oh, now I get it. Yeah. Right? And it was, you could just see it was a beautiful moment, right? I'll never forget that moment. It was a, it was a bonding moment. Oh, but sure. at the same time, it was kind of cool to touch on what we're talking about is there's something about writing in your own handwriting. There's something about saying something out loud. Um, that just has meaning to it. Yeah. It has some depth. Absolutely. And I know this has nothing to do with coffee. Oh, please. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I like what you said about speaking something into existence because lately I've been kind of caught up in, like, language and, like, the meaning of, like, language in a, at a very, like, high-level kind of, you know, approach um, and how weird it is that we've all just agreed on, like, a set of noises, you know, and how, I mean, you know, it sounds kind of weird when you say it like that, but, like, each part of the world has a different, you know, set of noises that they respond to. And how is it possible that the word that we use for anger, you know, and that makes us, that we identify as that feeling for a completely different person that speaks a different language, that feeling doesn't necessarily exist for them, okay? Um, because they just don't relate to that. They have a different word that they use that, and you know, I, I speak Spanish, and so there's, you know, some words obviously in Spanish and English that are similar, and it's very interesting to me when some people sometimes ask me for a translation, and I'm like, there's not really a word in English for this. I'll give you the next closest word that I think kind of comes, you know, but it's not quite, and I can't tell you that because you don't speak Spanish, so you don't get that difference. But in my head, because I'm seeing both these words and I can relate to both of them, I can see how by me translating it, I'm not able to fully communicate that feeling towards you because it just doesn't have the same significance in that other word. Um, and I think that's really an interesting thing um, at the end of the day. And... I was thinking how we all have kind of like multiple voices in our heads, you know, when we go to make a decision or something, you know, we like to think of things or we try to look at things from different angles and perspectives. When you go to write something out, when you go to say something, you are forced to kind of consolidate to one voice. You know, you have to, you have to stop all the voices now. Well, there's one word I have to choose and it all becomes one voice, whether it's on what you're writing or on what you're saying, you can't, you don't get to have a million different voices kind of all trying to sway you in a different direction. And so, I don't know, I was just thinking of that too. That I think that's, you know, but when you were talking about your little brother, I thought about my children and, you know, how sometimes I have to tell them like, hey, you need to apologize. And I know that sometimes I tell them this because they don't want to apologize because they're still angry. But honestly, sometimes they don't realize that they have to apologize. And I've found that a lot of times if you just have that conversation with them beforehand, then they apologize on their own. Like they realize where they've made the mistake and they will apologize because just having that conversation with them and explaining to them, hey, what you did was not right and this is why somebody's feelings were hurt, you know, because for them, it's all testing. You know what I mean? It's like they know something and they go do something and then get a reaction from it. Like that's all children do. It's just A-B testing like constantly. <laughs> 
<laughs> and our job as parents or big brothers or whatever is just kind of to like course correct, you know, every time that they kind of, or, you know, to the best of our abilities, I feel like. But I honestly, having kids for me and, uh, you know, has probably been the single biggest learning experience in my life. <laughs> like, honestly, it's just been, I, I feel like there's so much about the human experience that I would not understand if I hadn't had kids personally. And I'm not saying it has to be that way for everybody, but for me, having kids is like just, you know, when it comes to like learning and like behavior and just like seeing little kids and how they act and then seeing adults and being like, oh, interesting. Like this is probably what was happening for you. You're just a bigger child. Yeah. <laughs> I can rewind the clock mentally and kind of see what happened, you know? Um, so. I don't know. It's to me, it's just really cool. I encourage people to have kids <laughs> because of the, you know, That's what? Awesome. Yeah, but it's not for everybody. Yeah. Well, can we talk about coffee a little bit? Let's get into it. <laughs> uh, I will make a a little note before you get into that. This is on the vein of of coffee. Oh, for sure. The industry. We were talking a, a little bit before we press record about a, a study that was done. And uh, and something about writing things down, consolidating thoughts. On the coffee roasting side of things, there's really not a lot of books. Mm. Like academic, not academic, but valuable books on roasting. Uh, because, for one, there's so many variances and so many perspectives on it. And for two, in order to write something down, you have to consolidate all those variances into one theory or concept and then present that to the world likely other professionals yeah other roasters yeah so you have to be have some credit banks in the buck right sure. or bucks in the bank and and then you have to also have enough of a consensus from an industry as a whole to present this idea and go yeah this is how people should roast coffee and that's why there really yeah. aren't that many because no one has really had the guts to, to do it. There's a handful of them, um, but not, not too many because I think that that part of consolidating all those thoughts into something that people can somewhat agree on and or is mostly right, mm -hmm. uh, it, it doesn't exist yeah. as, a, as a whole because I don't think in general people really know what they want or what they like. You know, you think about like espresso technology is amazing. And there's been such great data. And I was chatting with a friend of mine, uh, uh, Will Frith. He owns Building Coffee out in Vietnam and has been doing some really cool work out there. And we were talking about kind of automation and some other dynamics that are going on in, in espresso equipment. Because the reason that's so far advanced is because we have a large pool of data. We have mm. a lot, a lot, a lot of baristas working on a lot, a lot, a lot of espresso machines every day, making drink after drink after drink, hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands that we manufacturers have a good data pool of what people are actually looking for, what problems need to be solved. Well, in roasting, generally, this isn't the case. There's many amazing extroverted roasters, but a lot of times roasters are maybe a little bit like chefs. You might correct me on that, but kind of in their own head, you know, very theory based, you know, always kind of turning over concepts and ideas and strategies of ways mm -hmm. to tackle sensory experiences sure. or execution of recipes and things like this that they don't really 
there's not that same feedback loop mm-hmm. in roasting tech. So mm-hmm. automation and roasting is way behind. So the tech mm-hmm. that's available now isn't really satisfactory as a whole because there's not enough in, in intake data yeah. from people in the field, so to speak. So it's an interesting thing. I don't know why I got off on that, but well, we were talking about writing stuff down and yeah. how it does. It takes a lot of a lot of energy, especially when you're trying to put out an opinion to be accepted by industry professionals. It's a it's a very ballsy and challenging thing to do. Yeah, I agree. And maybe a way to approach it that would help it because I feel like with technology and how quickly it changes, it's hard to write about technology because almost by the time you're done writing about it, it's, you know, different. And I think that maybe with coffee roasting, I don't know, you probably know this better than I do. The technology is also changing very quickly. Um, And so maybe if you approach a book from like the, from like the perspective of like, you know, it has to be more, I feel like experiential, you know, and more like, you know, this is how you get, this is kind of how to get to good coffee, you know, but I can't really tell you what road you're going to have to take because you live somewhere else. I can just tell you what the destination's like, you know, and then this is where the mountain is, (laughs) you know, Um, because yeah, you're right. It's hard. It's like, uh, you know, chef's don't really write textbooks you know they write recipe books you know because it's like i can't really tell you that that's wrong i can only tell you what i've done that i've liked and the people that i've fed have liked you know and so yeah i mean there's you know there's obviously guidelines to things and things that don't turn out but at the end of the day some of the craziest things that we eat and drink today you know would have never been imagined you know years ago you know so it's just like um you know, at the end of the day, there's no really when it comes to a lot of these kinds of uh, arts, I guess, if you will, because I mean, I do believe to a degree that, you know, roasting and, and cooking and these are all arts, you know, it's science kind of, but it's mostly an art in the way that it's expressed. Like these kinds of things, like they're really hard to, you know, pin down theoretically and say like, yeah, this is you, there's only one right way to make mayonnaise, you know what I mean? Or to make any one item like that, that doesn't really exist. And so I'm sure it's the same when it comes to coffee, like there's not one perfect every time this is how it's going to come out if you do it that way, because everybody's in a different place, elevation, humidity, moisture, like there's just too many variables, too many variables. But what, um, I guess, so what got you into coffee like in the first place yeah so uh when i was back in detroit michigan area north of detroit there was a corporate cafe that had opened up and so i'd gotten a job there in high school worked my way up and had had some experience general managing a a corporate franchise business model and uh that was sort of interesting to me it was just a high school gig and then i moved to college in chicago and uh, Allison, my wife, uh, she introduced me to this guy that was roasting coffee for his like family's cafe. He was 13 years old. Uh, he's a good friend of mine to, today, uh, Nate Hamoud, uh, over in Desert Oasis Coffee Roasters in uh, Michigan. So he introduced me to this guy, and he like made me a single origin something. I think it was a coffee siphon or something like that. What's um, a coffee siphon? It's this glass bowl that has a butane burner underneath and then there's a glass chamber that seals on top of the bowl and so by the heat the heat from the burner 
causes the water to vacuum up into the top chamber, which is where huh. you brew. And then when you remove the heat, it comes back down, it comes back down and filters That's through. Cool. Uh, it's a pain in the butt, and it's very hard to get right. And uh, you break a lot of glass, too, because you're constantly like heating, cooling, heating, cooling, heating, cooling. But anyways, he was doing it, and it was an amazing cup of coffee. And so then he took me back and showed me their little roaster that they had at the time, and they've they've grown now. They have I think three, three or four cafes now. Awesome, awesome guys, uh, family too. And so I go, well, this is cool. Maybe I'll save some money in college and roast at home. You know, my mom was big into cooking, and you know, we spent some time overseas as kids, and so we had experiences of in those sensory experiences of cooking and messing with different recipes and that sort of deal my mom was pretty experimental in her cooking for us as well which was awesome and just sort of birthed this intrigue in both me and my older brother but anyhow we so i bought this little home roaster bought some green coffee online which is just the raw coffee unroasted and started roasting in my dorm room well you start roasting in a dorm of 50 other dudes that are all going to college they Did start the whole dorm start smelling like coffee? oh yeah oh yeah big time <laughs> that's wonderful so they all come in and they're like oh my god it smells amazing yeah uh and i was like oh yeah and i make guys a cup of coffee or whatever and they're like well can i buy some well i'm i have a little entrepreneurial bone in my body or two <laughs> it's in my blood i'm yeah, pretty sure yeah but i feel that i go Heck yeah, you know, run a little side business, roast some coffee. So it just all kind of came to me. So I bought some bags, some labels, hand wrote labels. And so I'd go to school during the day. I'd work at, um, nice. I'd work a day job. And then at night I would study and do roast coffee. roast coffee. And then in the morning I would pack up my backpack with books and coffee and then distribute. So had a That's little so cool. uh, drug route going. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> That's funny. So uh, that lasted for a little over a year before uh, the dean caught wind of it. <clears throat> and unfortunately, it was like... They shut it down? Yeah, you know you can't be doing that. Right? Oh, my gosh. Damn. But what are you going to do? So much... I get damn. it. Chicago and fire, it's a touchy subject. So, oh. <laughs> <laughs> they were a fire hazard, and they were drilling too me soon, with a bunch too of... Soon. Too soon. Sorry, that was a bad joke. I'm sorry, Chicago. I didn't mean it. Oh, um, my gosh. So, yeah, so then... Uh, a year after that, I moved out here, Spokane, uh, and Allie was out here, and so she introduced me to Deb, mm -hmm. who owns Roast House and First Avenue Coffee, which is where we're at today, and so she was working for a cafe that served Roast House, and so she goes, okay, you got to meet this lady, and I met Deb, and um, I don't know if we're allowed to curse or not on this podcast, oh, but she had some choice words to me because I was 19 <laughs> at the time. So sure. I walked in and was like, hey, I want to roast coffee for you. And it's kind of like, I'm sure breweries get that all the time. You get a home brewer that comes through and they're like, hey, we want to work in the brewery. Like, uh, okay, <laughs> cool. Mine. Right? Like, I'm a home cook. Can I yeah. be a chef at a Michelin guide restaurant? You're like, yeah. You got a little, you got, a, you got some work to do. Yeah. <laughs> Look at my Instagram though. Yeah. I'm sure your knife skills are great. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, so, so she, she told me to take a hike and, um, that was the day I decided that one day she'd pay me. So, <laughs> That's... Uh, I just kind of kept coming around. I found another job in the meantime and hung around, hung around. And then eventually her head roaster at the time said, okay, fine can't pay you anything you know 
but if you want to do like an internship type deal and just come hang out on a Saturday basically it wasn't anything formal I'll be roasting cupping which is like a way that we taste coffee you can come and just hang well Dave has like decades of experience in the industry so I'm going sweet fired up you know you have a guy that's willing to sew India and mentor you so I would just show up and we would roast coffee together and I'd take notes and ask questions and we'd taste together and mm. I'd develop palate and, and before you know it, uh, about a month or two into that, he had decided to move on to a different career path so they're like, well you're here so welcome. You want it? <laughs> so yeah, so we shook hands, printed That's business awesome. cards and, and I won. Uh, you know. Deb well, said that she'd never hire me, but yeah, you know, and <laughs> the funny thing is that it sometimes it just takes sticking around, you know, I, I, I feel like that's kind of not valued enough in the sense that when you really want something and the timing is off more often than not, you can still get it. You yes. just have to wait for the timing to be right. I'm reading a book right now by Angela Duckworth called Grit. Hmm. It's a great book. Hmm. Oh my God. So it's a good. great last name. Yeah, I know, right? Duckworth. Uh, yeah, she's an incredible lady too. But anyways, the one of the first few sections of that book is talking about, you know, part of, they like do a lot of studies with Navy SEALs and high-level executives and things like that about what makes the difference between people that stick around, people that become high performers, people mm. that aren't. And is it skill? Is it talent? These types of things. And one of the uh, chapters is just called showing up oh <laughs> yeah and there's something to be said about you can have the most talented individuals there's a quote in there i'm trying to remember but i'll probably butcher it so i'm, I'm gonna stay away from that one but <laughs> it's a great quote but it basically talent is useless if there's if you don't show up mm. right you can be the most talented human on the planet you have to be there you gotta you gotta freaking be there yeah so then the same goes for people that aren't are less talented, but show up. Mm -hmm. They are typically the ones that are willing to put in the effort um, to actually make. Yeah, make no, it I happen. totally get that. And it's it, you see that happen. You see that happen so much where there's always that person that you're just like, how did that? How did they get here? Because you you see you you know you might think like, oh, they don't have the best skill or whatever, but they might be the hardest working. And, and, you know, the, uh, it sounds like a cliche, you know, obviously work hard, you're going to go places, but it's, <laughs> I don't know. At, at the end of the day, you still see so many people who just don't show up, you know? Yeah. And if you have the skill and if you have the, the passion and the talent and you show up, like, I mean, you're not going to, you're going to win something. You right. found the quote? I did. I found the quote. So it, the quote is effort builds skill at the very same time effort makes skill productive. When you don't come back the next day, when you permanently turn your back on a commitment, your effort plummets to zero, and as a consequence, any skills stop improving, and at the same time, you stop producing anything with whatever skills you have or have attained. Sure. So it's, it's the same concept. There's, there's so much to... I, I've worked with a lot of new roasters um, in the industry, both that we've hired onto the team and also that work for other companies. And one of the biggest things is just doing your homework, just showing up, doing the work, taking notes, and being a student of your work. Mm -hmm. uh, that one of the National Geographic photographers, he's one of the most notorious, I can't remember his name right now, but 
you know, he had a quote in there and it's hanging on the wall in National Geographic that says, that says, master your craft. And it's this call to, if you want to be proficient at something, you have to put effort into it. And when you put effort into it, skill is produced. And then if you continue putting effort into that skill that you're developing, then eventually it becomes productive. And so I think, not to blame things on technology, but I think that we associate effort with productivity immediately or much sooner than it probably happens. So a couple years ago, I was working with a powerlifting coach and he would do these live Q and A's with all of his clients. And this is the best. Someone writes in, they're like, bro, bro, bro. Yo, how do you get traps like that? And so he gets to the question, he goes, um, train every week that you're scheduled to train. So if that's three days, four days a week for 10 years and don't skip a session. <laughs> He's like 10 years. And then a little bit. Yeah, exactly. And then a little bit later on that same guy comments, he goes, he goes, yeah, but like what exercise do you do? He's like, train for your prescribed activity each week for 10 years and don't skip a session. And it's just this, kind of very simplistic way of saying just do your homework do your mm -hmm. work master your craft yeah and then out of that comes so then when you're 10 years 20 years 30 years into a path or a skill set and people go god how did you learn all that mm. and you go, just there's a bit of it that's just dog work practice yeah no i agree i heard um, what's his face? Uh, Robert Downey Jr. on uh, the Joe Rogan podcast a little bit ago. And he was talking about how he's prepared for several of his movies and kind of like how he's evolved as an actor and stuff. And he said one of the biggest things that changed for him and what helped him to become a much better actor was simply reading the script the day before and the night before just going through, just spending a couple minutes going through his head on like what he was going to do the next day. He's like, that's it. He's like, just taking 10 minutes of mental awareness and preparation for the next day and, you know, having my materials. Like, it sounds like ABC stuff, right? But he's like, that's all I needed to be able to show up the next day. And the question on my mind then wasn't, what are we doing? Because I already knew. The question now was, how can I do it best? You know, because now you've moved on from that phase. And the same thing has happened for me in school. And I tell people this, you know, when I hear people getting into culinary school and I'm like, what's, you know, they tell me like, oh, you know, what's the biggest thing? And I was like, read the recipes the day before. You know what I mean? Like, um, Chef Tobin, who's retiring this year, it's a tragedy, um, you know, but one of his biggest things was always write the recipe down from the cookbook to, you know, our, like our notepad that we have in school. And he's like, write it down. He's like, even if it's the same recipe that is in the recipe book, write it down in your cookbook. It's a bunch of reasons, you know, you don't get your cookbooks dirty, you don't ruin them, cookbooks can be expensive, you know, but also he's like that act, like we talked about earlier, of writing down the recipe, yeah. Not only do you remember it better, but you're gonna think about it. Um, you know, if there's an adjustment that you wanna make later, there's an easy way you can keep track of that because so much of cooking is just, you know, making little adjustments. Oh, you know what, I was gonna do this, but I think this might be a little bit better. And a lot of that, trust me, if you don't write it down, you just lose it, you know? Um, and I actually lost a notebook on an airplane coming back from California, I know. And, and it wasn't even, I had just gotten it, I had literally written in it like maybe not even 10 pages but it was just 
devastating <laughs> to me because like I was like man well and I'm gonna have to sit down and try to you know come up with all these that are not come up but like remember these ideas again because these things just come to you and if you don't write them down like you just forget them you know um and I don't know I have found that for me it definitely is true I I write things down and even in the kitchen like um voice has helped me a little bit in my phone in the kitchen because I can like do voice messages sometimes um, and I just have to remind myself to listen to them because then <laughs> that's the other part but um, all right well what were we saying before that I feel like I yeah, got off traffic oh yes of course so you've been at Rose house now for a while um, so I guess let's talk about you know the beans for a minute um, Obviously, yeah, <laughs> Rose House is obviously big on, you know, sustainability, on sourcing, on all these great things. Um, but what does the average person that drinks coffee on their way to work in the morning, you know, need to know to make a better buying choice? You know, when they're going to what questions should you be asking the people that are serving you coffee? Because I tell people what questions, you know, to ask about the food that they're being served. But what about the coffee? on food oh little you know i feel like maybe it'd be some of the same things but like you know um i like to ask questions like the other day i walked into a store and before I, this is going off a tangent and there was moldy bread uh, for display like to, that you could buy and so i took it up to the lady and i was like hey um just want to let you know there's some mold on this bread and and she was like oh thank you and like turned around and like you know just kept going and i was just a little bit like all right, like, you know, if somebody had come to me at my store and, like, shown me moldy bread, like, that, w I would have felt a lot worse and my reaction would have been a lot different than just, like, okay, thank you, and, like, just turn around and walk away, right? But I was, like, you know, the questions that have to do with freshness for me are usually the biggest ones because um, a lot of places, you'll be surprised, especially places that serve fresh food, like, things like diced tomatoes, okay, like, for some reason, it's one of those tasks that cooks just don't like to do because it's more time consuming. It's kind of, it takes forever, exactly. And so what ends up happening is when they do do it, they do a bunch because they don't want to have to do it a whole bunch of times. So then they do a big amount and diced tomatoes get weird after a while, okay? Like, I mean, especially if you've ever worked on a line and you've had diced tomatoes, you know, on a container, like they get weird after a while. And it's not the only vegetable, it's the first one. They get slimy, you know, especially if you're, you know, wearing, you know, gloves and so you're, you know, dipping into some hummus or whatever, like, you know, all sorts of stuff gets in there. And it's little things like that, that when I get a plate and I see that, you know, there's been attention that's been paid to those little details that I know what's going on in the kitchen. You know what I mean? If the diced tomatoes come out and they're all slimy and they look like they've been sitting in tomato juice for, you know, 48 hours, then I'm like, they're not, they don't care about the little details about their ingredients. You know, they're not keeping them as fresh. They're not cutting them probably as often as they should to maintain that freshness in the, you know, and I know that's just one little thing, but um, I think that those small, like, details go the longest way in the kitchen as far as like the message that you send people ask me all the time like uh or you know when i talk to them that i want to open a restaurant they're like oh well what's it going to be like like some expecting some kind of crazy concept or like yeah and, and I'm, I'm just like no bro like honestly 80% of the places could sell anything if it was well executed with good ingredients and a good team. Like the menu is irrelevant, okay? I mean, that sounds crazy to say it. Maybe that's a little bit strong, but 
you can open as long as you have a good location a good team a good concept and good sourcing of your ingredients you can cook almost anything and people will buy it and pay money for it because it's much more about the principles the theory and the application than it is about the product itself like we all have to eat that's taken that's already been taken for granted you know um and so it's just how do you what's the best way to facilitate that process you know for the guest and um i you know coffee obviously not everybody has to drink coffee but it's become a thing that obviously is a lot more popular nowadays and so i think it's it's important like we kind of mentioned for a minute i'm not sure if we we're recording already or not that we've just kind of been drinking coffee for a long time because it's tastes good and we like it and you know whatever and there hasn't been a whole bunch of you know books written like you said or research or just discussion in a lot of with a lot of people about what actually goes into your coffee cup like where do the beans come from what's what makes good beans good and bad beans bad you know it's easy to look at a tomato and be like oh this is not a good tomato but how do you do that with a bean oof yeah there's there's a lot to unpack there because yeah. oftentimes you won't you won't see the the product that goes into the roaster as a as a customer as a guest mm-hmm. of any roastery or cafe you're not seeing green coffee um, before it's roasted you're only seeing the finished product yeah so you don't really know yeah so that's a bit of a challenging dynamic to say oh you can look for these things on the outside. And so people have sort of superficially said, well, if your design is aesthetic in a cafe, then you can kind of (laughs) maybe assume that they hopefully put that same intentionality into their coffee. That argument is kind of a loose, loosey goosey. You know, I think you can can look good and smell good and not be good. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I think not to interrupt your flow of thought, but I just think that people have gotten to a point now where they've realized that it's 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 not easy necessarily, but that it's very well no i guess easy might not be a bad word that it's easy to make a place look good and that making a place look good doesn't necessarily always mean that the food's going to be good yeah just go to pinterest yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) yeah i've found that sometimes it's the places that don't even look the nicest you know that have some of the most quality food like you know hole in the wall little restaurants that you know have chairs that are falling apart you know but like the focus is on, on the food. Yeah, right. exactly. Right. Yeah, with coffee, it's it's a bit more challenging because your customer interact, your guest interaction is so much quicker. So you're not sitting down with someone, you're not serving them at a table. You have that thirty to sixty second interaction with them at a, a point of sale station, basically to have a conversation, find what they like, and then deliver their order. So total guest experience time, if they're not hanging out, you know, sitting down in your space, you're looking at two minutes, three minutes, maybe. If you're if it's a busy place and there's a line, you might be pushing that five to ten minutes. So it's really hard to say, oh, here's some things that you can clearly look for or ask. But some of the things we focus on is organic. That's been a huge part of our business model since the very beginning. Deb started the company in 2009, 2010, and uh, and that was her commitment. She said, okay, hey, I'm seeing a lot of these coffee roasteries that are doing small portions of their business, or if it happens to work out that the coffee's organic, cool, fired up, awesome, but if not, no worries, mm-hmm. right? Because organic's more expensive, and there's a whole bunch of other things that go behind it. And so 
we go, okay, so we'll market maybe one to two coffees as organic. We'll leverage those to make it look like we're, you know, there's a concept called greenwashing, right, which is the idea that you can leverage some, some product lines to use sustainability-type language to communicate to customers that you're sort of on that echelon of quality. But really only one to two coffees on your lineup are actually like that. So I don't, I'm not privy to that information for competitors and things like that. So, but nevertheless, what she said was if that we're going to use those terms to, to make business decisions, then we should do it 100, 100%. Sure. No exceptions. And so that's what we've done uh, over the last 10 years. And I came on about seven, seven years ago or so. And it's a challenge. Because a lot of it is, and I was just dialoguing with someone yesterday about this too, a lot of the language, and we were talking about this earlier, is not really clearly defined. So people can throw out terms like direct trade, sustainable, organic, fair trade, um, farm to cup, right? All these types of terminologies, right? Same in restaurants, farm to table, these types of things. But what the hell does it mean? Single source. Single source, okay. That's another one. Yep. So so when you ask someone, what does that mean? Very rarely do people have concrete a concrete definition of it. So it can be used in multiple, multiple scenarios and mean different things, different applications, which is fine, I suppose. It's a problem in the industry that needs to be solved or at least have because so there's a concept called single approach strategies which is all about hey we see this issue in the industry so we're going to solve it by using this tactic and then we're going to leverage the fact that we use that tactic to do it to gain marketing market you know market uh um share right so you go okay well direct trade was big in the then the stumptown era so you go, okay, so now you got a bunch of people using the term direct trade because they saw they kind of used it and it worked for them, and so maybe we'll use it. But no one actually ever sat down to define it. And now with, you know, we have pricing crisis and coffee and a whole bunch of other dynamics that are going on, and people go, okay, well, we'll do this. But there are always these single approach strategies. And they're all done in, I believe, good, good intentions. hard intentions, good heartedness. Um, some may malicious, but I'm not going to make that claim, right? I'm not, I'm not, oh, wag my finger at them. But at the same time, so people need to understand that the terminology is difficult. It's difficult to go, oh, yeah, if you see this word on a bag of coffee, you know it's good. And so part of that has come with the boom of, of conscious consumerism, right, is this idea that you're not just a mindless consumer that's, here, take my card, run the card, buy whatever's in the store and walk out with what I need. There's this whole other marketing approach of people that are actually thoughtful, that are thinking about what they're buying. Right, and how do you make those decisions? And so with coffee, I think it's just important if you're trying to support uh, coffee that is on those types of value systems, right, that it's organically produced, there's no chemicals used to produce the coffee, that it was roasted by a local company, 
a small business, whatever the things are that define how people consume their goods, then then get to know the companies that you want to support that are in your local area. I, I think that's the best way to do it. And then go, yeah, I align with that, that brand value. Because you can go to Winco or Walmart or wherever store and get a five-pound bag of coffee for $8 or what, I don't know, however <laughs> cheap it is, right? And then you go to maybe like a Huckleberries or some specialized market or you come in here and you see coffee in the 15 to $20 range and you go, well, I can get one pound for 15 to 20 or I can get five pounds for eight to 10. Hmm. I don't know if that's actually that cheap. Yeah, it might not but be it's actually. a big variance but for sure. But it's a large variance. Yeah. And sometimes the budget dictates decisions. That's but personally, I would rather not drink coffee than drink some of the coffee that's available. Right. You know? I, <laughs> so that's so as a business, then you're trying to communicate to customers to make those same decisions. And so we've done some things with the way that we source and the way that we roast and present coffees to make sure that we can be approachable, that we can be in the, in the realm of access to people. Um, and so that way, fundamentally, you know, the way that I think about sourcing is if I'm working with a producer, let's say in Peru, my whole goal is as I grow, I grow in my purchasing volume with that group. So a lot of times coffee producers are producing a coffee and they may have a buyer, they may not. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they have to sell it to an internal market. Sometimes they have to sell it to um, you know, uh, an exporter that can then find a buyer to import it and so on and so forth. So my whole goal is when I'm working with a producer to say, when they're harvesting their coffee, they know roast house and we're gonna buy it. So when they're putting in the labor, I might not see it for another six months or four months from the time of the labor actually put in, but they know that it's already been pre-sold. And so that's how we've built our sourcing program is to be really intentional and thoughtful about how we scale. Because there's coffee's huge, right? There's, there's a ton of different producers. You can cherry pick all day long. I could work with a different producer from one country every year into perpetuity because it's, a, it's there. So as a roaster and a, and a buyer, so to speak, uh, I don't absorb a lot of a risk on that, on that end anyways. Not in the same way that they are putting in a bunch of labor on running there and maintaining their farm all year long in hopes for someone to buy it and actually buy it for what it was worth, not what the sea market or some other external buyer says no actually it's worth this so the best example is like let's say you walk into a coffee shop and what's your go-to drink okay how much does it usually cost a 16 ounce probably like at least five dollars okay so so you you show up at a cafe and then go okay great 16 ounce caramel latte five dollars and you go "Mm, i'm gonna give you one just imagine doing that and now imagine that the cafe was in a position to where they had to accept that. Hmm. Because if not, what are they going to do with their coffee? <laughs> right. Sure. Right? It's ludicrous. Yeah. It's like the most laughable thing that we could ever conceive. It's like, yeah. that would never work. Like, someone did that at any of the cafes in town. People would be like, um, well, well, no, it's <laughs> yeah. $5. You'd be like, yeah, 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 yeah. I know it's $5, but I'm going to give you a dollar for it. You're like, 
Well, it's five, or yeah. like you don't get the latte. Yeah, or no latte yeah. for you. So it's so funny to think about that, but a lot of times that's obviously a very, very oversimplified version of it. A lot of times that's what ends up happening with with buying situations and producers. Not always. Um, there's a lot of different dynamics that go into it, but oftentimes that can, can be kind of how it goes. So rather than cherry picking and, and popping around all the time, we have a designated section of our sourcing that always goes to the same producers. Mm. So as our business grows, I'm not guaranteeing them some growth. Yeah. That guarantees them some growth too. That's good. Yeah. I, I feel like coffee is one of those crops that has, uh, you know, obviously not only a big impact on the people that are growing it and, and, producing it and getting it all the way to you to when you're roasting it but obviously it also has a big environmental impact and so you know you yes. talked about organic um is it possible that maybe we are just consuming too much coffee and so there's no way to responsibly meet the demand that we have or is there a way that we could responsibly source the amount of coffee that the market demands today Oh man! Because like I, when people ask what, me this yeah. about like meat, right. I'm like, it's impossible. It's impossible. If we continue the consumption rates that we're at right. with meat or increase them, mm. we will never be able to sustainably produce meat because it's just not at that not yeah. at that volume. It's just not meant to happen at that volume. Right. And so it's a great it, question. Does that translate to coffee? To coffee? Yeah. So World Coffee Research is an organization that we work with uh, that is built around providing some of these solutions and and at least legitimate research into some of those challenges, um, like supply and demand. And so one of the trajectories is no, in the course of the next so many years and the consumption rate rising, probably not. But there's another way to look at it and it's outside of agricultural. Mm. A lot of it has to do with the economic dynamics of the marketplace. So people go, oh, okay, well, let's say you're fourth generation coffee farmer. So your family's been doing this for a while. Mm -hmm. They've been doing it for a hot minute. Yeah. Okay. And then let's say you see grandma and grandpa and mom and dad eat dirt on their coffee farm for two generations. Then it's your turn. What do you do? You need dirt. You're not going to do it. <laughs> yeah. You're going to move to the city. You're going to deforest the coffee plantation. You're going to do something else. You're going to plant avocados, right? Avocados and toast are big, I hear, these days. So. <laughs> Dude, avocado is another crop, though. That... Oh, bro, yeah. Let's not even get into yeah. that. That's a deep hole. But, right, you see what I'm saying, though. Yeah, no, and then obviously, yeah. again... I'm not an international economic specialist. I'm not an agronomist. I, sure, you know, so sure. these are all speculations. But from what I gather from being in, in communicating with a lot of different facets of sourcing, that, that can happen. That's mm -hmm. likely that someone's going to go, why are we still doing this? This mm -hmm. is stupid. Mm -hmm. We are not making a living. We're not able to put a roof over our head because we got a bunch of asshats walking in the front door saying they are only willing to pay a dollar for our caramel latte or mm -hmm. for their coffee mm -hmm. we're only willing to pay pennies on the on the pound mm -hmm. and we have to just take it 
And there's something fundamentally wrong with that, I, yeah. be, I believe. For sure. Just on an ethical level. Yeah, but absolutely. The whole dynamic, and coffee is very much into this, is that you've got an industry that's so trying to be in tune with ethical dynamics in their industry while also being a for-profit business. Mm-hmm. And it's a challenging position to be in. When you look at the numbers and you see the upside of doing something slightly unethical, but a lot of people are doing it, right? Well, mom, everybody else is doing it. <laughs> that will make me a lot of money. You see those numbers. I'm not going to lie. It's hard to go. That's not the right thing to do. Yeah. No, I'm sure. So then when you're put in those decision-making positions, you go, no, actually, we're going to make this decision, which is the right thing to do to actually pay the producer what it costs them to make it. Cost them $5 to make that caramel latte and be open tomorrow, right? So the way that I've been defining sustainability for a while now and until I kind of come up with a better definition, I think it's a pretty concrete way to think about it is that... It's making a decision today that the business and the next generation can run on. Mm, I like it. So sure, you might have some challenges in this era. And so you're trying to make decisions to make the business exist. But at the same time, you have to also take into consideration what is the next generation Mm going to do in this business? Maybe not that particular business, but that industry. Yeah. And so for a community, right. So a coffee producer, taking it back there to think about that going, it's hard to go, well, coffee's really not making it for us, so let's cut down all the shade trees, let's cut down all the coffee trees, let's grow another cash crop that we can actually make a living on. That's a hard argument to make to someone. Mm. To go, hey, I know, I know, I know, I know. Yeah. But like, don't deforest, because <laughs> trees are nice. Like, it's a yeah. hard argument to make. Yeah. So we can kind of sit here as roasters, as buyers, and go, this is what we demand. And it's definitely in a non like I said, we don't absorb a lot of risk in demanding that of a, of a producer. Of a producer, And so the closer you can get to being in line with what a producer actually needs year to year is so important. We had a producer that we were working with. We worked with for, we were the first, uh, one of their first roasters to buy their coffee when they exported in 2014. And they came to us this year and they had some challenging dynamics, low yield, some microfinancing issues. And they said, hey, you know, unfortunately, we had a little bit lower yield. What country? Uh, Peru. Oh, yeah. And so we, we might not be able to supply to all of our normal customers, yada, yada, yada. And we're having some buyers pull out because of this, which I get. And then they, I said, well, why are they pulling out? They said, well, we have to ask for more than we originally contracted. Mm. So now I'm getting nervous. I'm going, <laughs> oh no, how much more? <laughs> and like, am I going to be put? This is one of those moments. This is the decision making moment. Yeah. And the amount that they asked for extra was laughable. As like how much more? Correct. Oh. It was almost nothing. And it meant them being able to do it again next year. So it was a huge difference for them and not a huge difference for you. Correct. Yeah. But so, the then, so then we set up a price matching system. So we actually paid double what they were asking for hmm. and absorbed it with our partnerships. Nice. Right. So then these are the things that you can make that sure you make a little, it was more, I'm not going to say it was nothing, but yeah. it, 
it was almost nothing yeah. for us. Sure. You know. Negligible. Negligible. Yeah. Yes. So you go, that, I think that's, not to toot our own horn, but making really thinking about it do your homework think mm-hmm. through things bring your brain with you I'm, one of my secret mentor, sauce at Rose one of my mentors always said that he goes Aaron bring your brain with you <laughs> <laughs> I'm like oh yeah right just think about it just pause for yeah. two seconds and go hold on a minute I can buy on the C market today for I don't know what it is we can look it up it's like let's say it's a dollar sixty a pound and a producer is going to get paid maybe 20 to 25 percent of that hmm and come to find out, their actual operating costs are like closer to two to two fifty a pound. Correct. So they're like losing. Correct. More than <laughs> that's a big margin of loss. Right. For the producer. Correct. That's see, and I think this is like. Uh, I so mean, this how is, do you have that conversation with a guest when they just want their americano to go? Yeah. This is the answer. Your and they don't want to pay a dollar more than a dollar ninety nine for it. Right. Yeah. No, and I agree, and I think that that's. I mean. Part of the discussion here is people just realizing that they've been sold a lie in thinking that they can get really good, you know, responsibly sourced coffee for that price. It's kind of like Burger King. You know what I mean? Like if you grew up thinking that you could pay $2 for a high quality burger, you're in for a rude awakening, you know, because it's going to cost you more than that. Not because anybody's trying to be mean (laughs) or because anybody's trying to get rich necessarily. But because of the, at least currently, the way the supply and the demand is and what's available, like it costs more to do business this way. And I mean, you know, they say, you know, money is the root of all evil. But if you make money your bottom line, you're going to make a wrong decision along somewhere along the line, at least when it comes to values and ethics, because money doesn't, you know, take those things into consideration. Numbers don't you know they don't tell that story um like you said you can look at an an option and be like well but if i did this it would be so much more profitable and sure if profits was you know your end goal that'd be an easy choice to make but profits can't be the end goal because then that's where we all get lost you know and and i think that's what's a lot of what's gotten people against you know um the man and corporations and all that you know is the fact that yeah, yeah, he is. But it's just that he's only thinking about his pocketbook. You know what I mean? It's like he doesn't care about anything else. I, that's kind of like the underlying, you know, co- thought process there. And, I, you know, this is kind of a segue into living livable wages, you know, because you're talking about paying them, you know, a good, a good amount of money for the work that they're doing, even though it's not here, it's in Peru, it's wherever. But, you know, for those of us that are here, you know, also there's a side of, you want to be able to pay your baristas a proper amount of money. You know, you want to be able to pay the employees in the company a proper amount of money. And so where's, you know, and nobody has one right answer for this, but what's your opinion, I guess, on like, what's the balance between saying, well, listen, you know, the market right now is that you can go work anywhere as a barista and you're going to be making X amount of money, even if that's not necessarily enough for you to make a living. But, you know, do you take into account the fact that, well, you know, maybe this job, you know, doesn't have to be your, you know what I mean? Like how much of that responsibility is on the employer versus on the employee to find jobs and, and opportunities in the market that are going to provide for what they need? If that makes any sense, because me as a cook, I'm like, man, I have two kids. You know what I mean? Like my living expenses are greater than the average 25 year old 
that doesn't have kids that's single that you know shares an apartment with somebody else you know what i mean much much higher cost <laughs> so if you're going to hire me as a cook you're going to have to pay me more money for me to be able to live technically doing even the same amount of work you know than you would a high school student you know who might to a degree even have the same amount of technical skill you know if you will which is possible um and so you know that's a hard question for me because people tell me well you know what what do you need for a salary and i'm like well this is what i need and they're like well you know normally when i'm hiring 20 year olds i don't pay them that much and i'm like okay i get that you know but this is my situation you know and so I, and that happens to everybody in their own way you know so it's like do you, how much of that should a business take into account and like i'm torn on this subject to a degree like that's why i keep talking about it because i you know, don't really have a definitive answer that I feel like I've gotten to a point where I feel like this is the right way to approach that. But half of me is like, you know what, uh, if you need another job, then, you know, go get another job, you know, if you need a, you, whatever. And then the other half is like, well, but if this person's really good at that and like, that's their passion and that's what they've been doing for a long time. And like, you know what I mean? So it's like, we're, I don't know. It's, it's a weird place to be. And you want to be able to price your food or your coffee or whatever in a way that allows you to keep your employees happy because I do believe that your employees are your first uh, you know your first guest if you will is your employee and then the way that you treat them by extension is how your guests will be treated um, and so if you're that's cool I've never heard it said like that, that your employee is your first guest yeah that's a cool idea um, and so it's like you know you have to treat them right otherwise they're not going to feel like they have to treat the guest right um, and so I guess balancing that is like I don't know what's your call on that what's your take on that from a compensation standpoint, I think there's a valid question that is left to be answered. We're talking about terms that have yet to be defined, yeah. but are widely used, livable wages. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. How do you define that? Mm -hmm. So it's the same thought. Um, there's a coffee roaster in, I think they're in Portland. And this is really smart, I think. They have multiple, multiple cafes all around the city. All of them have different prices. Hmm. Same business name, same menu, so but all of them are different prices because they cost different to run a business in that neighborhood. Oh, that makes sense. So they calculate their overhead according to location hmm. and they charge accordingly. So if you live in the uppity part of town, you might pay more for your item than if you live in a part of town where the real estate might be cheaper. Yeah. 100%. And I think it's a brilliant way also to slowly educate guests, the consumers, customers, yeah. consumers, whatever you want to call them, on the, the cost of running a business yeah, and sustaining it, meaning that you're making a decision today that the future business, the next business generation can run on, mm. which is treating it as its own entity. And so I think from the livable standpoint we sort of blanket statement use that as a culture but haven't really quite defined what does that no even, i agree what does that mean oh well it means 15 dollars an hour for a minimum wage employee <laughs> it's like okay <laughs> for some people for some people that might be livable but what about the person that that's not livable for them then yeah. what well yeah. they're getting paid livable wages by our definition now so Again, I think that it's important to define that and then treat it as an in, as business to business entity. Um, so, from a cultural standpoint, you know, I'm really intrigued by 
team culture, company culture, things like that. I think there's also some validity to speaking about opportunity for professional development that may not necessarily be monetary advancement and the value that that has. Sure. And I think that some of that is difficult to calculate as well. Mm. So you might get, let's say you get hired at a larger company and they pay their production staff or their line cooks this livable wage, this $15 an hour, but you will never do anything else. <laughs> Ever. Yeah. You will show up, you will dice your tomatoes, you will go home. Okay, so that's option A. Option B is you maybe aren't at that peak compensation level, but there's a whole myriad of growth opportunities, growth opportunities in areas that you may have intrigue in. Mm -hmm. Whether that be education, sourcing, roasting, production, invoicing, accounting, marketing, all the, the ops, right? All the different dynamics of running a business. Mm -hmm. And let's say the culture is about creating people that can have some adaptability, right? So when we went from a two to three employee company to, you know, eight to 10, eight, 10 to 12, so on and so forth, a lot of those questions came up. I'm sure. People would be like, oh my God, what if they take your job, Aaron? And I'm like, <laughs> this is the whole point. The whole concept of losing your job because someone outperforms you is because you stopped growing. Mm -hmm. You stopped developing. You stopped doing your work, mastering your craft. You didn't move on. You stayed stationary. Mm -hmm. So then, not you, but the... No, yeah. I, royal you. Yeah, the yeah. royal you. <laughs> exactly. And so part of the culture that, you know, Deb and I have been trying to create in the Rose House culture is that it's engaged with people actively on what they want mm. out of that job mm. and being able to meet people with where they're at. And I think that there's a quality of life dynamic to being an employee that is oftentimes overlooked. Oh, absolutely. So just the word employee just kind of, Oh, I hate it. <laughs> employee, general manager, <laughs> shift supervisor, staff, <laughs> these words I don't know they just cringe sometimes yeah. yeah gag me it's like licking a popsicle stick yeah but dear lord but I, I think that it's a, it, yeah exactly how do you define those things and then be able to create a space where people have value not on some bullshit we're all family here you know and we use those terms too that's like this is my work family um, I don't know why I was going to that voice for other people. But <laughs> <laughs> it's a thing I do, apparently. <laughs> um, but then there's there's nothing there's no part of that culture that's like family. Yeah, right? we've all worked at places. Yeah, like that. that just say that for sure. And so, how do you actually embody what being a team looks like and creating opportunities for people to become masters of their craft? What is their craft? Identifying what their craft is. And then by identifying those things, being able to understand that there is a piece of autonomy that is so difficult to place a dollar value on. Mm. Yeah. Right? I agree. So if you can make your peak livable wage and be able to have total autonomy, do whatever you wanted, 
whenever you wanted. You still did your work. You still performed. That would be so much worth, worth so much more than if you were a multi-multi-billionaire and had so much money you literally could never spend it in your lifetime even if you tried. Yeah. There's something to autonomy, For sure. freedom, opportunity, um, being sewed into, um, being able to sew into others that you almost can't put a dollar value mm. on that. Mm. And I think those are the things that I take into consideration, especially when you're working, when you're selling a $3 widget. Yeah. I it's agree. a $3 cup of coffee. Yeah. Like if you want to make six figures being a barista, <laughs> pick a different industry. Yeah. No, I agree. 100%. Right. There's only do the math. I've done the math. I've done the homework. Yeah. I'm a math nerd. Everyone that they all make fun of me for it too. Right. But I, I've calculated out what it would take for someone to make six figures as a barista. And it's, it's literally like take your busiest cafe in Spokane, multiply it by five, in terms of revenue mm -hmm. and then you're going to work by yourself seven days a week 360 <laughs> days a year then you can make six figures damn yeah no i mean this is not the service industry at any level really is not one that you can be in to get rich unless maybe you're like owning hotels and stuff like that but yeah. even at that point you didn't get rich running starting a hotel you know what i mean right. like you got rich somewhere else you dug a you, hole threw all of your money into it yeah exactly. and then some that you didn't have and yeah. then buried it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly but no definitely not in this to be rich and i mean i don't know i feel like also there's something to be said about creating jobs that don't require the same you know what i mean like at a restaurant for example if you're buying um, shredded lettuce and cut tomatoes and already made salsa and all these little things like that obviously you're you're and there's decisions that you have to make for you know labor versus you know some things that are already pre-made and stuff like that however those are jobs that are technically low skill kind of jobs like if you tell somebody hey i need a cook to come in and you know make some salsa today like Almost anybody can do that with the right instruction, right? Much more somebody who's interested in cooking that's trying to break in, right? And so if you if you start to do, at least for me, one of the ways that I hope to be able to address this is to do more things in-house, you know? And this creates the, it creates the task, you know, of like, oh, okay, well today we have to shred, clean our lettuce, you know what I mean? Because we're not buying it done in a bag. And so there's a, you know, there's another hour task that somebody has to do. And sure, I'm not going to pay you what I'm going to pay, you know, a chef, you know what I mean? If I, I'm speaking here as an owner of a place, you know, what I'm going to pay my chef, but you're also, your contribution is not the same. And, um, but, you know, like you said, I like the idea of where if you're creating these opportunities for growth, you can tell somebody, you know, right now you're cutting lettuce and I'm paying you this for that. But if you do a good job, you prove yourself, you, I'm willing to pay you more. You know, it's not that I, uh, a lot of places like, um, you go to and it's like, you can move up in the company and you can get promoted. I remember one of the first kitchens that I ever worked in, um, was Chipotle <laughs> and one of their biggest things to fame this was back in 2012 or so before they went through any of the stuff that they've gone through lately. it's honestly unrecognizable what did Chipotle put us through <laughs> Oh, they yeah. put a lot of things through us. Yeah, no, they did, yeah. <laughs> but it's unrecognizable, honestly. Like, back in the day, Chipotle was literally 
I mean, everything that came in the door was fresh, you know, everything, the tomatoes, the lettuce, the beans, everything, everything, everything. Nowadays, all of that comes already done, essentially. The salsas, the lettuce comes shredded. Like, it's it's just like every other spot now. Uh, I mean, you know, their sourcing quality of ingredients is better than the average place, and, like, their meats are a lot more sustainable and responsibly sourced. So it's definitely better than going to, you know... Uh, taco time you know as far as the quality of the ingredients but the preparation on what is happening in the store is unfortunately not the same as what it used to be anymore um but back in the day one of their big things to fame was like we only promote from within you know and so it was like you started out as like a whatever but you know if you were good they were opening stores so quickly that it was like you could get your own store within three years if you were a good employee and like you worked with people and you saw it happen you know where it was like i knew this guy three years ago and like now he's like apprenticing to like be the gm and he's going to be making you know close to 100 grand you know but that was another thing chipotle played their managers like really well like if you're a giant gm at a store you're making over 60 grand easily, you know, with bonuses, you get a car, like they threw in incentives, like they made it to where as a, as a person working there, you wanted to succeed in the company because you saw that they were going to reward you for that success. And I think a lot of people, if they don't see that, that's where they get disillusioned because then they're just like, well, I'm just going to be here. What's next? You know, I'm going to have to leave this job at some point anyway. And it's like, um, you either go into the job knowing that and your employer knows that and you can, you know, well, how can I prepare you for what's going to be the next step, which is part of what you said about that value, which is hard to like put into, you know, a number of like, how much is the preparation, the experience, the education, the relationships that you make, you know, at this job, even if you're not making exactly what maybe you want to make, how much is that worth to you? And is it worth taking a pay cut? to be able to be there for those experiences versus saying like, no, I'm not going to do that because I just deserve more money or whatever. You know, I've, some of my lowest paying jobs have been, you know, the biggest learning experiences, <laughs> you know, so. It comes down to a value system that I think is overlooked on a personal level. And I think it's overlooked as companies exist too, is what is the internal value system that guides your decisions? So I'm not talking, you know, religion or faith or anything like that. Sometimes those can be guiding parameters. I'm just talking about like as a human being, what are the mechanisms in your spirit that go, this is the right way to treat someone, this is the wrong way to treat someone. And so then when the decision making comes through down the pipeline, and it hits that first filter of, okay, how are we gonna treat this individual? It goes through to make the, the, the decision that aligns with your values. Not right or wrong, but what's aligned with your values. So then, as a company, as individuals, what are those value systems that, that guide our decision making? Another great exercise to write down in your own handwriting, right? And it's such a difficult thing to go, yeah, what do I value? Like, you know, Aaron Jordan is, you know, Hector, I don't know your last name. I'm sorry. Torres. Torres. Yeah. Damn it. <laughs> that was good. embarrassing. No, but you know what's funny is that one of the first things that I did at my last job when I went in was I was like, what's your mission statement? Yeah. And they were like, oh, we don't really have one. Yeah. And I was like, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So even companies that have mission statements, I think that that's different than a vision. That's true. And that's a value true. system. So a mission is sort of something you can hang on the wall. It's a great guiding thought, right? But the, the value system is actually the outflow of the mission. Mission, vision, I would maybe say are similar or the same thing. 
And so you have that sort of governing like principle and then you have the actual execution, the operation side of it. And the operation side is what are the values? So a coffee comes down the pipeline, right? I got a bag of, of green samples from a couple of producers that we're looking to work with in Costa Rica and Colombia. And so those coffees come down the pipeline. First filter, do you know what it is? Is it organic? Okay, mm. let's say it doesn't. Let's say one of them isn't, one falls through, but then the other one keeps going because that one is. So now we reach our, our next sort of filter, which is, uh, does it align with the type of maybe flavor profile experience that we're trying to create or give to our guests? Okay, yeah, it does. So it goes through again. Mm -hmm. And then we would get down to, you know, what did the producer actually need to make per pound for that coffee? And then that filter either makes it a good fit or, or not a good fit. Maybe it's out of budget. So then when it's out of budget, then you get into business mode and you think, well, I got to negotiate now. So now let's, let's, let's get down into the nitty gritty. And now I'm going to nickel dime you so that I can get this product, which I really, really want to sell because I think it has market value and blah, blah, blah. It tastes good, yada, yada, yada. But I'm going to try and, I'm going to try and tick that price down because you go buy a used car and the US and you talk a guy down a grand and everyone goes good for you bod you really screwed him over you know right, yeah right and we all celebrate getting a deal rather than actually just paying for what something is valued at I'm not talking about you know big corporations or name brands that are you know have a different economy of quality so to speak I'm talking about just person to person right human to human those types of interactions and doing just, I get it. We all operate on a budget. I'm not a millionaire either, but if we're trying to always get a coupon, always trying to get a deal, always trying to hit the industry night when it's 30% off or hit this, then we're never actually valuing the businesses that we want to frequent. So rather than doing that, maybe just budgeting differently, go out less, but then actually pay a business what it's worth. Pay the $5 that it costs that business to produce that latte and exist tomorrow and exist next year. Go support that. I don't go out and eat and drink a lot, but when I do, I'm not trying to like always like nick. Totally, right? So a great, a great concept of consuming meals. So let's say you wanted to support a restaurant but it was out of your price range enough to where it was like a, one of those special occasion restaurants, right? You go there once every year, something like that. So on the same token in culture, what if you went to that same restaurant multiple, multiple times, but you just got appetizers or one night you got drinks or one night you got something small. You didn't need to gorge yourself on a whole meal, have this whole experience. You could still support the business and pay what, what the meal was worth, but maybe you just get a little, little something, something, a little snacky snack. It's totally outside of our cultural norm. When you go to a restaurant, you bite off the whole enchilada, you, you, you double down, you get an app, you get a main course, you get a dessert, you get a cocktail, whatever the case may be, right? That is our consumption pattern in a restaurant. And so sometimes we can't afford to always go out to these restaurants all the time and, and do that. So what would be more worthwhile to that cut that business? You frequenting, and we have plenty of customers that come in that can't afford to buy a pound of the really high-end coffees. So we offer half pounds. 
or little sample pouches, right? And you make it approachable to people so they can still enjoy those things as supporters of, of us without having to pay buku buku bucks for a particular coffee that we sourced. And we do that on purpose to make it accessible to them. I'm not going to devalue the product because that's what it costs. We paid a lot for it too, right? So then, then I think in those small things, you're also educating customers on, on the value of what you do. And so I'm a big proponent of supporting restaurants more frequently, but not always having big tickets. Absolutely. This is so funny you're talking about this because over the holidays when I was in L.A., I mean, one of the only things I do when I travel is go out to eat. And also, is there anything else to do in in another city? I don't I don't think there is. Yeah, Um, I literally go to Seattle anywhere. It's like plan my day around the spots that I want to hit. Exactly. But besides the point, um, it's like, I don't know. For me, I found that. um, Well, back up a minute. So. Oh, shoot, I just lost my train of thought. What was I going back to? Um, well, we were talking about just supporting restaurants oh, more frequently. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I was in uh, in California, I realized that so many of these menus now are written differently. You know, and it's different when you're like in downtown LA because I feel like you're like kind of seeing like the cutting edge a little bit, you know, because I mean, it's one of the, obviously, you know, one of the biggest cities in the US, you know, by extension, one of the biggest cities in the world. So whatever you're seeing happen at the biggest cities in the world, like it's, that's where things usually kind of move out from there. And these men, the menus that I'm seeing are just like almost always geared towards small plates, table sharing, um, you know, family style to a degree, not necessarily in that you get some huge portion that everybody shares, but in that you're, you're supposed to order, um, you know, things are priced, you know, more affordably, um, but it gives you the option to order more when you can. And when you just want to come in, because I just want to have, you know, a small snack, like you said, you can do that. This is the concept that is super popular in Spain with tapas. You know what I mean? It's like you go in for, you know, um, a drink, you know, or whatever it is, it's like, and you can get yourself a four or $5 little snack, you know, and it's not a whole meal. It's not right. even a whole appetizer. You know what right. I mean? It's just, it's a couple bites, yeah. you know? And sure, if you wanted to come in with a group of 10 people and you want to order 12 things and you want to fill the table and everybody gets to try everything, yeah. awesome. Love but if, it. but if not, the menu's written in a way where you can easily enjoy the experience either way. And this is something that I've been, talking with somebody I'm hoping to hopefully be able to help them open this restaurant and one of the things that I was telling him is like try to market it what the restaurant in like how many different social um, environments or how many different social um, moments can your property cater to you know what I mean like when you speak of like socially like uh, will it do date night will it do uh, I just want to go and get like a snack and coffee will it do a single you know late night drink will it do a group of six that's trying to drink more and you know maybe stay up a little bit later like how many different social kinds of events can your property handle Um, do you have couches or do you just have you know chairs and tables you know do you have a little sit down place there a bar like when you think about 
because at the end of the day, when people, a lot of places, or when a lot of people, when they choose other places to go to, they do it based on what's going to happen. Like, oh, I'm going out with my family tonight, or I'm going out with my girlfriend tonight, or we're going to go drinking tonight. And so that informs the social experience you want, informs the choices that you have from which to choose from. You know, it's like, well, I know I'm not going to go there because that place is just really loud and we're trying to have a conversation. Yes. Or I won't go there because that place is, you know, kind of, you know, not very loud and, and we're trying to turn up and, you know, get some music and dance and have a fun night you know so it's like you choose the places based on the experience you want and so if you can make a property cater to as many of these social experiences then you win more i think because then people are more likely to be like oh i can stop in for this i can stop in for that and like you said they're more willing to support you because they see you as catering to these different kinds of situations this is amazing i was just i've been talking actually a lot about this so there's a restaurant group called bocaria they're out of the east coast and uh, my brother went to kendall college in chicago um hospitality and business or I can't remember his exact degree um, but it's been in the restaurant industry and so they open a place and they're traditionally styled tapas right? mm, from, nice nice from Spain yeah and very similar yeah so it was a it was kind of a cool moment so we traveled back east over Christmas we had a bunch of layovers travel delays yada 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 and then we wound up having to get a rental car Christmas Eve and drive from Chicago to Detroit to mm. see family. Mm-hmm. We're supposed to fly, but <laughs> got canceled. Blah, yeah. blah. So we're driving. I wasn't, wasn't sure if I was going to be able to see my brother Ryan. And he goes, um, he's like, oh, you're in Chicago? You're literally driving right past the restaurant. Just come by. So like, okay, cool. So we come by. And it was exactly that. And the way that they kind of explained the service style was very similar to, that was where the Humana Verico. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, nice. The yeah, shaving. Yeah, 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 the shaving, yeah. And he goes, well, it was originally kind of this, this this concept was that it was the meal that you had on your way to do something else. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was the drink that you had on your way to do something else. Mm. And it spe- sent me back to when we grew up and, and spent some time as kids in, in Europe. It was very common to be going somewhere in the evening and going, oh, well, we have a little extra time. Let's stop by the landlord's house or our neighbor's house or our friend's house that's in that same neighborhood and have a cup of coffee or have, you know, just have chill. some cake yeah. or whatever, whatever little things. And so I remember we would just show up. We didn't have phones. We were in villages, you know, and they would just show up and people would host you and hospitality's through the roof and all this kind of stuff. And I got to thinking how mm. funny that would be if, what part of town do you live in? The Valley. Okay. Yeah. So if I'm like going to Liberty Lake and I call you up and I'm like, Hey dude, I'm going to Liberty Lake tonight. I got an hour to kill. I'm gonna come by. We're gonna have a beer. We're gonna have you know a snack or something. You go, uh, uh, uh no, no, you cannot come over to my house, right? And the same for me. It's just not part of our cultural yeah. norm where that would be acceptable. Where for sure, like, I'm just in the neighborhood, maybe with family. I'm gonna maybe be honest. In Latino really culture, friends. it's a little bit more prevalent. Yes. Okay. You know, like the whole stopping in and like totally, we're just here now. Right. Yes. Yes. Exactly. So. I just, I think that that's really what stirred this whole concept of changing the way that I dine out mm. and the way that I view restaurants is rather than going, okay, if I go to a brewery, I have to get like two to three beers. Like that's just going to be a thing that I do. Mm-hmm. Well, that's mm-hmm. likely to add up over the course of time and then, sure. you know, two to three beers, three to four breweries, you know, so on and so forth. Yeah. You go, yeah. Well, okay. 
you know, it's out of the budget or whatever the it's case a big may chunk, be, yeah. rather than going, hey, I'm going to go to this brewery, I'm going to get one beer, mm-hmm. I'm going to enjoy my time, spend mm-hmm. time with their, the brewer that's behind bar or the uh, bartender that's awesome and is a good human being and we mm. get along, and then I'm going to leave. Yeah. And I'm going to tip well. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Accordingly. Yeah. Right? I'm going to take care of the people, and then I'll come back tomorrow. Sure. Right? Yeah. So it's just changed the way that I thought about consuming things in a very North American fashion, which Mm. is if you're consuming things, you have to consume a lot of it. Mm. Yeah. Right? So on anniversaries, we go to QQ, we get a sushi boat. Okay, that's a lot of sushi. (laughs) It's a little ludicrous. I understand that. But But we also go to QQ more frequently and get a roll, a two rolls, whatever. Sure. A a couple pieces of nigiri, whatever the case may be, and support them because we love that business. They're a local business. We know that they source ingredients well, and we want to support them Mm -hmm. frequently. And the way that you support a business frequently is by frequently spending money there. Yeah. Right? You vote with your dollar. Absolutely. So that, I think, is more worthwhile, in my opinion. I would rather have someone come in and buy an Americano than a pound of coffee, but come in every day and see us. Yeah. Come spend time with us. Yeah. Let's build relationships. Absolutely. Let's build community. And that, re- I mean, I love that you keep talking about relationship and spending that time with the bartender, with the whatever, because people are so scared. Some people are so scared of automation and losing jobs. You know what I mean? And it's uh-huh. used by, it's used kind of as clickbait a little bit by some people that, I'm not scared by it. And the reason I say I'm not scared by it is because yes, automation is going to come and yes, it's going to take some jobs. But at the same time, what automation can't replace is the human experience. It can't replace those relationships. And so sure, a robot machine might be able to brew you or might be able to pull a perfect shot of espresso. Like that's possible within the realm of technology to do. It's possible to have a robot make you a perfect omelet. Like we've seen these things happen, but people what's what's happened you know more frequently lately as well is that people don't just go out to eat because oh this place has a really good value item on their menu like that's not the that's not the driving force people go out to eat because of the experience that they get you know and because of the people that are going to be there the way that they're going to be served um you know that's why they go out to eat and so if you think of as of a restaurant as a menu as a coffee shop, whatever, you know, what experience am I providing, you know, and what level of human interaction and relationship and, and emotions can I add to this, you know, that that's the part that even when the robots come, you know, they're still going to want me here because people like me, you know? And so that's kind of like, and I don't say it in like in a selfish way, but I mean, how can you become, you know, a personality in your business you know what i mean that the guest values enough that experience and and you getting to know them and talking with them that there could be a robot pulling the shots and like they'd still want you to be there you know because they'd want that connection and so um and i was it, just picturing robot jeez <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> this goes back to though like creating you know the jobs that maybe today seem a little bit like they don't aren't worth a lot that I think in the future are going to be the jobs that are worth the most because they're going to be the jobs that the computers can't do. And things like, you know, walking your dog. Okay. Like I, I always use dog walking as an example in this. I don't know why, because I think it's a great thing of like people love their pets and how much money people spend on their pets, I think is a great indicator of, um, 
like you know how much sadness oh no i'm sorry i'm sorry no no no, no. <laughs> i take it you have no pets no <laughs> i have two pets okay. <laughs> Um, I am so sad. No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but it's just like one of those things where you wouldn't think of like, oh, I'm going to spend money on my pet unless you didn't have to spend that money on other things. You know, I was thinking like, what got people playing sports? And I was like, oh, the fact that they had free time. Like if you never had any free time, you would have never thought of sports because you would have had to be busy creating a shelter. Aren't there a lot of sports that originated with like preparation for war? I'm not sure. I don't know. I feel like I've heard that. Like lacrosse. It makes sense. Lacrosse I mean, was originally a, a battle. I played lacrosse a little oh, bit in really? high school. Yeah, it was originally a, uh, a a way to prepare warriors. So people that lost the game died. And so the people <laughs> that made it through to the end of the game <laughs> sure. of lacrosse, yeah. where they're beating each other with sticks and throwing rocks at each other, those were the warriors. Oh my gosh, that makes sense. Yeah. Anyways, I don't know if that's true for all, yeah, all yeah. sports, but <laughs> but I mean, it was Fun just the fact, fact that like the fact that people can congregate around like a basketball game and like, hey, let's just go watch the basketball mm-hmm. game today. And, you know, the majority of it is spectating and there's a couple players, but it's like that for that to happen in big amounts of time, you have to obviously have a society that has enough free time or that gives time to those things, <laughs> you know, and it's the same with food where it's like talking about supporting food. Um, it has to be one of those things where it's not even you can't even talk about it being expensive anymore because honestly a lot of the new restaurants that have been opening their menus are not priced where you can go to the place that just opened i just posted about it a couple of days ago evan um and hunt brand new places that opened in town mm-hmm. you know great places to go and support and yet they're priced at like you know twelve dollars fourteen dollars and sure there's some things that are a little bit more expensive sure but there's also things that are a little bit cheaper and if you wanted to just go there for lunch today you can go and have lunch for less than fifteen dollars easily which is the same amount of money that you would go and spend at pf chang's or red robin you know right. and, but yet you know for some reason it's just it's a habit thing really where you just have to get into right. the habit of like you have know, you been to those places yet i have not oh, no okay Right. No, have you? No, uh-uh. no. I'm yeah. dying to go. Honestly, yeah, I've heard good things. Yeah, I have. Um, and I actually, I have that rabbit stroganoff is oh, speaking yeah. to me. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds so good. I had some venison stew yesterday that I made. Oh, oh my gosh, yeah, it was so good. But I actually have potentially an episode coming with one of the cooks from Evan. So that cool. should be cool. Yeah, he was uh, an intern at Noma for a couple months. Yes, we've talked about this guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he I'm actually hoping... came into the tasting room like right when he got back. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, I was there with him one day too. We were just chatting after he got back. And so I'm hoping to be able to get some time that works for him and record because, um, I mean, he's had a lot of great experiences and, and yeah, you what know. Yeah, an experience. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I, I told Crazy. him, I was like, man, if I didn't have kids, you know, as soon as I graduated, like I would have been boom, boom, gone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a little different, obviously with kids. Renee, be my dad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I mean, the fact that I have kids kind of keeps me here, but at the same time, I like the fact that it forces me to focus on the area here. You know what I mean? Spokane's uh, a cool town. It's an amazing Very town. Cool. And I mean, I've, I can't stop reading articles about how it's growing so fast and the real estate and the food scene. And it's just like nonstop, like growth, growth, growth. And if, you know, if you're in the area and you've been thinking about, you know, opening up a spa or doing something like it's a great time to do it. Um, Oh, this is a question that I definitely wanted to ask you. Okay. We're going to wrap this up here in a second, but um, what is one thing that you think, or when it comes to restaurants, coffee shops, what is what does Spokane not need more of, or what does Spokane not need? Like, if you're going to open a spot, what would you not open? 
avocados and toast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Just I'm go. To, just go I'm to down. the grain shed. It's delicious. It is. It's it the is. best. It is guaranteed. Anyway, no, I'm just kidding. Um, I have a personal beef with avocados and toast. Apparently. Why? I have no idea. <laughs> just makes me angry inside. No, 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 I'm just. It's it's fine. Here's the deal. You're not allowed to buy ten dollar avocados and toast and complain about money. That's that's all I'm saying. I agree. I agree. <laughs> but no, on a serious note, that was just a joke. No, but it's so true. Yeah. I mean, it's so true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, from a coffee standpoint, I'm not sure what it doesn't what it doesn't need. I think what it needs is maybe more more places that are on those intentional value system driven and also having some semblance of community within mm. the other shops the industry in itself mm. i was out at uh, community pint over there on sprague and project there. craft brewing was just launching their first lineup of beers and i walked in there and there were like three or four five different brewer owners mm-hmm. in spokane all at a table together cheers on the new brewery in town that's awesome and i thought that's amazing yeah. and i know that the beer community i don't know i'm not too familiar with it but it's from what i can gather pretty inviting and engaged and they're oh, always yeah. doing festivals and contests and things mm-hmm. together as quote-unquote competitors mm-hmm. and I, I would love to see more of that in spokane um we're all just you know the the busy excuse only works for so long yeah it's I like agree. How, how many times can you show up late to work because of traffic <laughs> before it no longer becomes an excuse you know i think that you make time for the things that are in your values and absolutely from a community standpoint i think that would just be a great way to mm. to and there are there are a lot of cool events and and things that take place in spokane in the coffee community um, but i'd just love to see maybe more of that what are your I, thoughts on pig out in the park uh, do you like the event no I don't really have strong feelings about it other than like it is exactly what the name is like people get upset about it I'm going it's not false advertising it's exactly what they said it was you can't be mad about it right avocados and toast it's avocados and toast I'm not mad about it for sure I just don't accept millennials that buy $10 pieces of bread with avocados smashed on it and some sriracha aioli and then get to complain about like their credit card debt i'm like you know you don't get you don't get that excuse wage yeah right 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 <laughs> oh full circle baby but yeah no i i don't have any strong feelings i've been once my favorite pig out in the park story oh, i'll never forget this man this is like my first year in spokane it's fantastic i'm like walking you know when you have those moments where you like see something in real life and it happens in slow motion. Oh, for sure. And you're like, oh my God. I can't believe <laughs> yeah. my eyes just saw that in yes, real life. Yes. Okay, so this is what happens. I'm walking, Allie and I are walking together, and there's this lady, and she reaches inside her shirt and her bra, and she pulls out a kitten, like a, a, like a an, live cat. Like a live cat. <laughs> And goes like this and points at the kitten really intensely, like right in their face and goes, no, you don't bite me. And then proceeded to put the cat back into her bra. And this what happened all fuck? while I'm walking by. And I'm like, so that, that's my favorite pick out in the park story. Oh and I think it pretty much sums up 
the experience of big out in the park. That is ridiculous. <laughs> it was just. Oh, sorry for that cat. Just, I know. Poor cat. <laughs> and too, like, pick out in the park for people that don't know. It happens in the summer or, well, later fall. But yeah. it was hot. It was definitely hot. Oh, my hot. gosh. <laughs> Anyways. Oh, my gosh. That yeah. is. Listen, I love a trash elephant here, like, as much as the next guy. But. And hey, there's a time when you can go to the fair and, you know, you can yep. order deep fried Oreos if that's your thing. Totally. I'm not trying to hate on experiences at all. I, my, my point of criticism to pay out in the park, or I guess not so much to the event itself as to the, to the businesses that go to the event, is maybe bring an experience that's a little bit different from what we get at the restaurant. You know what I mean? Like use it to like, I don't know, give us something. Because I don't want to go to the Taste of India booth and order the same thing that I do anytime I go to Taste of India. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's right. like, I don't know. I feel like all the restaurants are just like, oh, well, I guess this is where we have to go this week to make our money. And then they just like bring their regular old menus. Right. I'm like, that's at least personally me. That's not what I want to see. I, yep. I want to see a little bit more novelty at yeah. an event like that. Do but, something fun. Yeah, for sure. Well, hey, man, thank you so much for doing this has been a lot thank of fun. Thank you for having me. Yeah, dude, for sure. I'm excited to for everybody to hear this and get some feedback on it. And um, I'm sure that at some point we can have another conversation. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Hector. For sure. Great chatting with you. You too.